hello and welcome to the Event Lab podcast, your window into the events conversation, brought to you by Hirespace. This episode, we've got two very different perspectives on how events interact with local communities. First, Francis Gimlet from Taste of the Vine sits down with me to talk about how events can do more to support local British cheesemakers. I've come across venues passing off inferior cheese as top cheese because once it's cut up into slices and cubes and bits and pieces, who's to know the difference? Then I'm joined by Harriet Glover, an event organiser with over nine years' experience organising events internationally, to talk about organising events in developing countries. Because a lot of the events that I work on aren't in the corporate world, it's for non-profit, so there's not a huge budget, so it's, it's a case of being creative with the space that we have. But first... Vegetarian as standard? Should people need to opt in to meat? And how is the trend toward vegetarianism affecting food choice at events? Blazing a trail, could the events industry be the first to benefit if marijuana was legalised in the UK? All that and more as Sam Allen, Julian Sape and Edward Poland sit down for the News Digest. Evening. Good evening. Good evening. Sam Allen, MC Sam Allen, where have you been? Um, I am ever so sorry. I haven't been around, have I? I've been on my travels. Vienna, Frankfurt, Sitges, Barcelona, Toronto, and now safely ensconced in my new home in Oxford. Are you enjoying the travelling? You're doing a huge amount of travelling. Peaks and troughs. When you lose your suitcase in the middle, or not you, a certain airline beginning with a V, lose your suitcase and you've got 36 hours until you're going to get on another plane. It's a horrible feeling. But other than that, I'm living the dream. Thank you for asking. Good to hear. And listeners, that was the voice of Julian Sape, you heard, former owner of Zaffirano Catering and now... I'm investing. I am consulting. And I'm involved with three charities now on three charity boards. We're going to start with a question from one of our listeners from the other week. It's food themed, of course. So this is a question from Jemima. She says, my colleagues have made our Christmas party vegetarian unless you opt into meat. Is this the future and should it be? Oh, Jemima. Jemima. She sounds like she's not a happy camper. But I think that's absolutely... Absolutely brilliant. I love that. Thumbs up from the studio panel. Thumbs up officially. Double thumbs up from the panel here. No issues, please. We've talked a lot about uh, sustainability across many, many of our podcasts. But actually, action's something that we're not seeing in the industry enough and innovation. And I think this is great opt-in. This is not stopping people from having... They're not saying they can't have a meat option. But actually opting in, I think, is such a great way because I think you'll find that people probably won't miss it. It's a Christmas party, a few drinks and a few nibbles, right? I mean, I think for, for meat to be a special requirement is is, is the way forward. Even, so at even at Christmas? Even at Christmas? Even at Christmas. Especially? Think, I, mean, I mean, I think I think vegetarianism and, and plant-based diets are um, where things are going. The high street is becoming more vegetarian and I think the the demographic of your typical Christmas party is going to become more vegetarian. I think it's going to push the the food service industry to be more innovative with 
vegetarian menus. So I think I think all in all is a great thing. Did you see more and more of it? Remind me how many years you were running Zafirano? Fifteen years. Fifteen years. And did you see the trend towards vegetarianism? I mean, I, th- I think the the, t- the trend towards deciding what you do and don't eat certainly grew. I think that whole sort of the, the fadiness yes. of, the, of the food business grew. You know, we do a dinner for a thousand and there'll be 250 special requirements. Yep. But I, I mean, I think gone are the years where vegetarian food was a mushroom risotto i think i think you know for many years now a lot of thought went into the creativity behind providing non-meat substitutes yeah the world has changed i i know now when i'm going so for example i went to the imax ghana dinner back in what the end of may imax was and one of the questions obviously is your dietaries and i ticked vegetarian i'm not vegetarian but i don't need to eat meat and that's now a personal choice and it's an environmental choice it's you know i'm looking at where my food is sourced how my food is mm. sourced and we know this is a massive problem i don't need to eat that meat at a gala dinner I, th- I think it's a great thing though you know the, there's there's pressure to entertain well at christmas parties so whoever's come up with the idea is is going to have to turn it on and, and do a good job but can we ask Jemima if we can get a sneaky invite to the party and then we can do some maybe some live podcast sound bites to see if people if people notice and obviously those people who do there's always going to be the kebab fan. <laughs> That's not going for a little while I'm sure. Vegetarian kebab fan. Well maybe Jemima, that's right? the next yeah. thing. You got so you're a vegetarian Sam are you a vegetarian Julian? I'm not, but I'm I'm making a big point of eating less meat and fish. So would you you wouldn't opt into meat if you were going to Jemima's Christmas party? No, I'd be I'd be I'd be keen to be part of the whole vegetarian culture. Yep, me too. Jemima, it's not all bad and you can always opt in. Gillian, you mentioned the high street is getting more vegetarian. Actually yeah. earlier you were talking about was it Pret who Pret have bought Eat? Yes, yeah, so Pret, right? Pret have acquired Eat. Um, two amazing uh, sort of grab-and-go brands that have coexisted side-by-side for many years. Prep, by far the the front-runner. Prep's such an Um, unbelievable business. Yeah, it's an incredible business. Yeah, one of my favourite food brands um, have now acquired Eat, and the plan is to turn, I think, the majority of of the Eat outlets, not all of them, but the majority of them, into veggie prets. You'll have seen some of the veggie breads. I've seen those around. They're doing well, right? Yeah, they're doing really well. And I think the, um, you know, you know, Eat is an established business. You know, I, I don't know how many locations they have, but certainly it immediately gives Pret uh, the shop window to, to to build the veggie Pret brand. You go to a market, so, you know, a food market, and the vegan stands. You know, they're always absolutely keys flowing mm. from them. Mm. Do we have Do we have vegetarian, vegan only caterers? Yeah, I think in we have. In a lot of the Indian caterers are vegetarian and vegan, as yeah, I recall I think, back I think in the day. I think you know, as a business plan, it's risky as a as a, a catering company to pigeonhole yourself too much because you're reliant on numbers to make your business work. And so, I think it's 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 easy for a high street vendor or a street food trader to you know to to, to work with one brand, but I think for a catering company. There was a great company called Passion Organic years ago that traded on organic food only, but they didn't survive because I, I kind of think, you know, they, they, it was a premium service and not everyone wanted it. And I, I think you can get away with being a, a vegan street food vendor, but a vegan catering company is, is, I think that would be tricky. That's very interesting. As a caterer, you need to be kind of, you need to be reasonably bored. Yeah, I think, I, you know, you, you, you trade on a mass audience. 
And I think it's, um, I mean, well, having said that, we're now talking about Christmas, vegetarian Christmas parties, so who knows? But, but if you've got a big brand like Eat, Pret Eat merging, and that they're taking half of that business and making it vegetarian, it shows you where the trend is going. That's that's not just a lifestyle decision that they've made. That's a very clear business no, decision true. that they're going to be making a huge amount of money for their, their investors and their shareholders. Mm. So I think we need to look as an industry at, at brands like that and see where that trend is. That's It's not going away. But I think, look, I mean, I, I think the, you know, with the street food revolution and, and street food markets and now market halls curb, the street food vendor are now opening their first market hall in Seven Dials in Covent Garden in, in November. I, I just think the, the way people eat food on the high street is now permeating the corporate space. Yes. So the whole world of facilities catering, contract catering is now changing and they're digital food marketplaces like City Pantry, who are now, in effect, the delivery of the high street to the mm-hmm. corporate space and are now taking over the way people eat in the workplace. So traditional caterers seriously threatened, would you say, by the, the marketplaces? The yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't think th- their businesses aren't threatened yet, but they're certainly aware of, of, of the change. And contract caterers are already working with street food vendors and pop-ups and you know, giving their clients more choice. It's the choice people want. You know, people go out. It's, it's a lifestyle economy. They have so much choice on high street. They, they go to a street food market, 20 different food ideas in front of them how can a facilities caterer that has a rotating menu monday to friday compete with that and i that- think there has to be a demonstration because i think delegates are getting more savvy on this now i mean it used to be you know it as long as it you know tasted okay people didn't care where it was from how it was killed what distance it traveled to get to your plate whereas now our you know consumers are delegates you know yeah. the shift between b2b and b2c is just morphing and I think that's something that caterers, venues, event organisers really need to remember now is that people are asking those questions. Your delegates are going to have expectations. They do have the, the preferences. You had one vegetarian. That's completely gone now. It's not just about food preferences, which is obviously a massive shift, but it's also food intolerances that we all know have, have increased. So, you know, let's not fall behind um, any of those suppliers and but any it, of those planners. Yeah. Choice is a massive thing in events. Go online, there's social media, there's marketplaces, there's so many beautiful venues and yeah. amazing you know, inspirational photos and food. And I wonder about venues have always had the approved caterer, approved mm. supplier list of venues, which you can totally understand from a venue perspective. Mm. But is is that kind of model under threat? Do event organisers want to be told which caterers they can use at a certain venue? I mean, I, I think it's, you know, from a from a buyer's point of view or a venue's point of view, it's, it's a dream, isn't it? There's so much choice. I think for a, for a supplier's point of view, you know, there is too much competition. You know, it's very difficult to stand out when, in effect, we have ourselves created a sort of beauty parade market mm. where... You know, this market has traded on choice, and that's why, especially London, is is such an amazing hub for event suppliers and content. But it's 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 hard for the suppliers to compete when you've got a, a when when the when the buyer is looking for so much choice. I think now on those preferred lists, and a lot of the unique venues obviously operate those. I think there's a lot more work to be done to make sure that those lists are diverse, so mm. that you're actually offering your clients. So I don't think they've gone or they'll go. But, you know, they are going to have to be more diverse. I think, I think, look, I think these lists are fashioned um, partly on 
offering people choice and different styles and price, but they are also, you know, the the caterers have become the sales force right. yeah. of, of the venues. Yeah. So, you know, some of these large public sector organizations that don't have the biggest marketing budgets have a, a fantastic line of agents running around town making it all happen for them. So, yeah, it's not just about So, the it's, you know, the, there's, there's, there's a sort of business intention behind, behind a, a list of preferred suppliers as well. Yeah, the choice thing is so interesting. We see this all the time at higher space. People, you know, people, people come and they, you know, they want, they want what they want. They want what they see. They don't want to be constricted in in any way, whether that's food or venue type or suppliers yeah. or entertainment. It's like a, almost like a democratization almost mm -hmm. of, of yeah. events because there's just so much out there and so visual and captures the imagination so quickly and easily and people all ideas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's that's why the sort of the the, the digital marketplace is, you know, hopefully it's a way of giving the buyer choice, but also systemizing the process in such a way that we're not, the suppliers aren't led a merry dance. Yeah, we've got and, a really interesting guest on the podcast this week, Francis from Taste of the Vine, and he hmm. is a champion of local artisan cheese and wine. Mm -hmm. What's the opportunity for artisans in the, in the food industry now? Well, I think, um, as I was saying before, uh, you know, the, the whole, that whole market culture, you know, high street is cool. You know, what's happening on the high street is, is leading the way. And I think on the high street, and especially in food markets, food halls, you're seeing artisan producers. People are really interested, you know, Sam was talking about before, about the provenance of their food, the farm where their meat came from, the, the, the winery where, the, where the, the grapes were pressed in a biodynamic way or whatever. People, people like the stories behind food as well. And, you know, from a marketing point of view, it's really, it's really great to be able to tell stories. So I think there's a relationship between artisans and you know the, the the demand for interesting food stories but then i still would put the question back to you guys in terms of the industry the events world are planners willing to pay for this i think we've sort of come to a point where we all talk about all these wonderful choices and that you know they want the moon the stars um and the sun um, but then they come back with, you know, the most ridiculous budgets. So something at some point has to give. And it's, you know, the artisan in terms of flavour and choice is all wonderful, but we, we bring it back to sustainability. And we can't keep on saying, well, we're not going to pay for this. We're not going to pay for change because change has to happen because otherwise we're not going to have an event industry because we're, we're destroying the planet. So I think there's a there's a really big conversation to be had and a big communication, and I don't know who should be leading this charge with planners and with the ultimate, the end budgets, because it's not always the planner that's the end budget holder. Mm. We're not communicating, and I'm sure some of these stakeholders live, like we were saying, live their lives and they want to do the right thing, but we've got to now translate this in the communications around stakeholder budget management. I think that's really important. Because it does come down to the money. And I was at TMS in a sustainability session and it was a really interesting session. Lots of meeting planners and, you know, it was just a jest session around, you know, who's, whose fault is it? Is it the planner or is it the supplier? And ultimately it's down to us all to work together. But we need to be talking more and we do need to increase that communication because things do cost more right now until we're all, it's supply and demand. That's basic economics. So until as an industry, as a, as a, a wider group, we're regularly using these things to make them, you know, make them cheaper. This is how it is. But I, I feel that it's a little bit of suck it up buttercup that needs to happen. 
Right, we've, we've spoken a lot about food. Unsurprising, Julian, one of London's primary food experts here. I want to talk about one other thing on the News Digest, not just food. Sam, this is one you wanted to talk about, so I'm going to allow you to step bravely forward and discuss it. This is the news that in five, ten years, basically, cannabis is going to be legal in the UK. Is this going to change events? Dear listeners, what we call that is a hospital pass. Uh, you just um, seemed really keen to talk about it. Maybe I, yeah. I'm mis- no, misread, No, I think that we're talking about current affairs, Ed, and this is something that's highly topical at the moment. We've had a group of politicians, a cross-party task force going over to Canada who've just legalised cannabis to you know, go and see how it's working out. I mean, it's only been, I think, about six months since since Canada legalised cannabis. And it, the show, I feel like I'm the producer of the show, but it's actually on this week. Um and I just think there's some interesting elements to this. I think CBD now is a you know a big conversation, but from an events point of view, which is my professional point of view, there's big money in these conventions. Mm. Um, if you look at the Las Vegas uh, convention schedule, there are huge congresses in this market. It's huge money. So I've got friends who do a lot of production and and what have you over in over on the you know the strip and you know they're some of the biggest events that i've seen um so i think from a market potential point of view uh we're always looking at filling our venues and our convention centers we've had that conversation we've got new venues and convention centers popping up well you know this could be a new market bit like the gaming the Fortnite. you know the fact that these you know these big gaming sessions are now filling out you know Fortnite, the final of Fortnite. Filled flushing meadows, you know, this is... That guy won five million. Three million. Three million. You know, so I think as, a, as a, an industry, we need to be looking at these new sectors. And I, you know, I think that that there's a strong possibility that cannabis will be legalised in this country, certainly five years, maybe, maybe slightly longer. So cannabis conventions, cannabis at events, Julia? Um, you're talking to the wrong person, I'm afraid. I, 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 I can't imagine... I was just thinking, where, where did, did the cigarette industry trade on uh, trade shows and exhibitions? How Absolutely. Back in the day, mm. they used to hold mm. big events. My mum, mm. who was 75, my mum used to go to events in Mayfair where held by cigarette companies and where they, they'd open up their handbags at the end of the night and the cigarette company would just pour mm. cigarettes into their handbags. So, so be, who it'll knows? Be, it'll, be, it'll be a strange sign of the times when we have cannabis events, but... No one's smoking. But it's not strange. I mean, these events are viable exhibitions and congresses that are, you know, Vegas isn't, you know, isn't, you know, glorifying, you know, cannabis use. It's a business Mm. exhibition Mm. and it's big. It's a B2B. So who are we to say no to these things if if they're if they're meant to be? And to make clear, the Event Lab podcast is not glorifying (laughs) cannabis use. Either. No, ca- no yeah. cannabis has been consumed in the by the, the News Digest team <laughs> in the making of the show. We're almost there. I want to ask you one question. There's another question from the audience, one of our listeners. I'm going to, yes or no answer is fine from you guys. This is Lisa says, Lisa says, according to a recent survey, 85% of event planners are optimistic about their future job security and only 15% express concern or worry. Is now a brilliant time to be working in the events world? I hope so, Yes. I I have to look and from, you know, I'm slightly outside the events world. But yes, I think it's a positive time. Let's keep smiling, keep working, keep uh, keep talking. 
keep thinking about sustainability and uh, make some money. Lots of positivity on food as well from you, Julian. Always brilliant to have you here. Thank you for Thank coming you. in, Sam. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. See you next time, guys. Take care. Thanks, Ed. Up next, I'm joined by Francis Gimlet, founder of Taste of the Vine, event host, cheesemaker and campaigner working to promote British cheese at events. Francis, welcome to the Event Lab podcast. It's great to have you on. Thank you very much, George. It's, it's a real pleasure to be here. and Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, well, I'm really excited to uh, to kind of explore your, your mission to get to get British events you know, into British cheese, kind yeah. of ra- raise the, raise their game. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a bit of a strange one. I mean, I I, I suppose um, my wife and I Pam um, we we started Taste of the Vine about twenty two years ago, mm. um, just for the corporate events market, and and we've sort of explored taste generally um, throughout that, and and it was pretty much alcohol um, until about five years ago when we decided to start doing more cheese events and cheese making events, and and we actually started a cheese making dairy, and that in turn led me on. I I, I wanted a book for our events and to, to, to really you know, create a bit of a profile for the company there. And, and the more I got to know about British cheesemakers, the more I was, I, I suppose, quite astounded at um, the, the difference between the perception of um, British artisan cheese and, and the reality. Mm-hmm. I kind of thought it was pretty much the same place that real ale was, that uh, artisan gins were, that English sparkling wine, all all growing industries and really vibrant. But cheese is pretty much stagnating in terms of the number of cheese makers and the, 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 the amount of artisan cheese mm-hmm. uh, out there. And visiting, I visited 100 cheesemakers in 100 days. I set myself this little challenge and camped on the roof tent of my Land Rover on the way around and in the snow and so on. Yeah, it was a real great journey. Fun. Yeah, yeah, well, it was a boy's thing. <laughs> um, but uh, it was great fun. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, all of the cheesemakers were saying that... Um, that pretty much it, they were finding it hard to connect with the public um, because they're there doing their thing and it goes through a wholesaler and the wholesaler sort of sells it and you don't really see the names of the cheesemakers. And and people, they were saying, they don't really understand the, the, the difference between artisan and the different, uh, and, and, and commercial. And you know, a commercial cheddar, milk goes in at one end of a huge machine and, and comes out and blocks about two or three hours later. It's so different with, um, uh, with, with a, an artisan mm. product. It takes, you know, a, a, a good cheddar 12 months and the best cheddar makers in the country are driving around in clapped out old tractors and there's sort of lack of infrastructure they're struggling with you know milk prices if they're also selling uh, on so I suppose I wanted to start the campaign to to, to sort of focus the um, events industry and get them really thinking about where their Mm. cheese comes from yeah Yeah, I mean that's 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 the thing I I think you know, event professionals always want to give their guests the kind of the best possible thing. But if they're not, you know, if they don't have that kind of education in what what Jesus. it is yeah. yeah but the thing is venues often don't and venues I've, I've come across venues passing off um, uh, inferior cheese as top cheese because once it's cut up into slices and cubes and bits and pieces um, then um, uh, who's to know the difference apart mm. from a, a, a very a few and in fact I was at a, uh, a function there were 200 people there it was I nearly mentioned the venue I'm glad I didn't <laughs> um, it, it was a, a top top flight venue sort of Michelin star uh, and um uh, and, and they were serving an inferior cheese as uh, a higher quality one. And, and I think uh, maybe me plus possibly one other in the room that might have known. But 
the experience that those 200 people were getting was far inferior to what they should have been getting. Mm. And, and to me, that was, that was um, a bit like serving a, um, a, a bag-in-box wine instead of serving a Chateau Lafitte or something. So, yeah, so saving the, kind of the lower quality stuff for kind of later on in the evening. I mean, do you think, I guess because you know, if you're having a, if it's a, kind of sort of a private dinner, cheese comes out at the end, you're kind of, you're thinking that your guests are perhaps less receptive by the end of the evening after they've had a few. There is that, but there is also um, because it looks and if it's it, it's about the shape and the look of it. Yeah, taste is definitely a factor. Mm. You're right, um, but if it's just the look and shape of it, a lot of people says, "Well, but you can't really tell the difference between one brie and another." And and well, why do we? We don't need to give them the good stuff. But the thing is, the experience, everybody tasting a really good piece of cheese will say, wow, that's mm. a really good piece of cheese. If you get a, uh, an inferior or a nondescript piece of cheese, people just look at it and say, okay, well, that's kind of what we expect. And you, you only sp- need to spend about 40 or 50% more to get the very best. It's not like trading up to the top uh, wine on a wine list. Um, so for a little bit of extra effort, you can really create a big impact with, with your uh, with your guests at an event, um, but I think the other thing with uh, the the it's an afterthought. I think because maybe and and I trained as a chef, so I can I can say this. I think <laughs> hopefully um, that um, a cheese board isn't the chef's creation. Okay. And so maybe there isn't when when you're presenting a, a dish out there and it's your signature. It's somebody else's cheese, so it kind of goes on there and, and, and goes out. And I think that that's a big shame, um, and that's beginning to change. And so, um, uh, with the we're starting up this campaign for British cheese in, in events, and with that, that's also to encourage chefs at venues to think a little bit more about their cheese board and having a cheese board served with named uh, producers, um, so you can see the yeah. provenance of the cheese and maybe a line or two background to uh, uh, to, to the, the cheese itself. I mean, absolutely, that's all. That's all part of the experience and i think people really love you know like increasingly people love to know the provenance of their food they love feeling you know part of the chain of food from kind of farm to table i mean talking about that that kind of amazing experience you have when you say that you kind of you have the best possible cheese and you really experience it events are such a brilliant kind of showcase for these these foods i mean how how can Mm -hmm. events kind of support the artisan how can they do it i i think that there are plenty of good wholesalers out there people like neil's yard uh, Harvey and Brockless. Um, there are uh, 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 quite a number, and, and in fact, most will do some artisan cheese. But it's a question of um, if you're an event organizer, asking the the, the, the venue um, to to maybe nudge it up a little bit on the cheese board and say, right, instead of just brie, Stilton, so on and so forth. Can you show me? You know, uh, uh, can I? You make sure that's a, a good producer. And yet, you may get um, uh, 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 the bill may be another twenty, thirty percent, something like that. But the, the experience will be different. It'll be, uh, it, it will be the equivalent of not serving bag in box and serving uh, a, a chateau bottled Bordeaux mm, at, from a good vintage. Um, and that flavour experience will will tell you know, for a client. I mean, I mean, sort of considering the the price there, and venues kind of worrying about what they're going to serve. Do you think uh, like Brexit will have any effect on on the, kind of on the industry and encouraging people to buy more locally rather than? I stuff think important? it will. I think it will. Um, I, I think definitely, if there's a no deal Brexit and there are um, there, there are tariffs imposed on on artisan cheeses, it could be up to forty percent on on cheeses. It it will focus people. Um, from uh, for, from that to British, but uh, unfortunately, 
one can't simply turn on a tap. There are only 300 cheese makers in this country. And that's kind of because we've been focusing on imported all of our lives. It's the exotic. It's all, we like things from far-flung places and we kind of denigrate our own. And, and so I've said, yeah, cheese is lacking a little bit behind other foods and other drinks. Um, and so you can't immediately switch on uh, new cheese producers. And so with the campaign, I want that to also not just to encourage uh, people to look into buying cheese but also to, to encourage new people into the, uh, the the cheese world so demand will will help mm. that and will help to push the um you know the the, the, the the price up a little bit because there won't be quite so much um but i'm actually starting a, a small um consultancy with a couple of guys in the cheese world uh, to help new or, or people who want to be cheesemakers uh, how to do it because that's what my wife and I did we, it was trial and error we, we, there was nobody out there to consult with us and so we learnt and every cheese maker that I've you know, come across in the last uh, three months they've learnt as well uh, on their own and so it makes uh, lovely individual stories but that's not the way the industry needs it needs to come together um, and, and it needs a, a sort of a hub if you like for, for, for new cheese makers to learn how to, to do it where to source their milk how to get to market and everything Everything else, as opposed to just saying, "Well, how on earth do you do that?" Um, and, uh, and yeah, so I, I want the campaign to just carry bubbling along to also to, to encourage that because you're, you're not going to create uh, new cheese makers overnight. Yeah. And, and sadly, uh, the resources are running out. It sounds um, a bit sort of fake, <laughs> rather sort of terminal. But uh, but the, 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 if anybody's familiar with the dairy industry, they'll know that it's shrinking. The number of farms uh, in in um, two, in 1997, we had 27,000 um, dairy uh, herds in the country. Many of small herds, mm. small breeds higher animal welfare, more time out in the field, not being fed concentrates, living for longer, but now we're going towards the mega dairies. We're actually producing more milk, but we're asking the cow for more. The cows are producing, on average, 10% more milk each cow. Uh, they're living for, for, for uh, maybe not 12, 10 years, they're living maybe six years. Um, and it's these small herds that are still out there that over the next five to 10 years, probably most of them will go. Um, and if they've gone, then you can't make cheese from their milk because you need grass-fed cows, um, you need small breeds, small herds, mm. because they produce really concentrated milk, which gives you, um, gives you higher cheese yields, but also the flavour. Um, the sort of milk that you get from a mega dairy makes very, very bland, fairly bitter cheese that uh, you, you wouldn't want to buy i guess it kind of shows how far the you know sort of buying an last cheese it doesn't just support the cheese maker, but it supports the wider industry you're kind of you're supporting even more local industry. you are and it's, it's it's an invisible thing but it's such an important one um, and that that i suppose is is the, the 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 reason that i've become sort of quite passionate about it this is is i would rather see um you know some of these Probably we've got nine and a half thousand dairies left. That's going to go probably to about five thousand in ten years, and those five thousand dairies will be pretty big and chunky. And so there'll be a lot of small herds, small stories that, that will just go. Um, and and each somebody said each pound. I don't know. It wasn't an economist, so it's probably. <laughs> But I mean, a pound spent in the economy tends to stay there or get mm. spent five or six times, apparently, before it goes out. But if you buy from a, a large producer or a, um, uh, something that's very high volume, it immediately goes out of your local economy and, and to a shareholding somewhere, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it is 
I think it is bad for communities mm. um, and much better to have uh, a, a farmer and farm workers who are you know, putting money into the local pub and the post office and, and so on and so forth and having a, a bit of a hub so people can interact with one another rather than just having sort of dormitories and, mm. uh, and, and going off to a factory. It seems like to support that, you, you, you kind of mentioned that people sometimes obsess over the, the exotic idea of that kind of, you know, French cheese, mm-hmm. French wine. This is a certain amount of kind of re-education and kind of reshaping the narrative so that people think about British cheese. I guess what what advice would you have to help people discover these kind of local? Well, I think then uh, I think uh, it, it, we're, we're talking to an events audience, an event organisers, and I think we often defer um, choices to the venue that we're working with or a, a caterer that we're working with, but just to put a little bit more pressure on. When you put the cheese board together, would you mind trying to get entirely British? Um, because um, there are the cheeses yeah. out there. And um, and also, would you mind telling me the, the farms or the, the producers? And if there is a, a, a producer name on it, it's likely to be a higher quality. It's not going to be just a, a brand or a name. Or tell me a tiny bit about the farm. Or, or when you send a, 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 your cheese a suggestion cheese board over, can you give me a, a line on... You know where this farm is, and 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 what sort of farm it is, yeah. and that will prompt the venue or the caterer to have a bit of a think and think. Okay, well maybe we can't give them the rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> Just to finish on uh, something fun, what what was the last cheese that you had, British cheese that made made you go wow? Oh gosh, um, uh, uh, lots. I mean, the, the, I, I <laughs> this afternoon, uh, <laughs> I'll give you. I had a choice. I, went, I was at Neil's Yard Dairy, mm. and I've been tasting sheep's milk cheese because that's that's one of our next projects we'd like to make a sheep's milk cheese and there was a fabulous um um sheep's milk cheese um uh, which was a um uh it was called burkswell um cheese which is a great artisan cheese to have but i suppose if anybody wants to know more another way of of helping out on on my my instagram feed it's it's uh, at francis gimlet it's highly cheesy uh, in in more ways than one. There's, it's got to be a bit of humour, and um, and yes, there are suggestions there. There must be at least seventy or eighty producer profiles, and and these are the best producers in the country. So they're all on the, the feed, um, and I am awarding venues certificates for uh, being champions of British cheese. And so if people have suggestions, then they can just sort of message me um, uh, as to you know their favourite venues, who's serving, or maybe who needs a nudge, because I went into one the other day and they weren't, and I thought, oh, I can't do anything here. And I thought, actually, I'll give you a certificate if you promise by the time I come back in two weeks' time when I've got my next event, <laughs> the cheese board changes. And they did, which was lovely. Well, hopefully, you know, if any venues listening get the message, and if you're organising an event, push your venue to, to think local, think British. Indeed. Cheese. Lovely. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you very much. A real pleasure speaking to you. From supporting local British suppliers now to supporting local communities abroad, Harriet Glover joins me to talk about organising international events. Harriet, welcome to the Event Lab podcast. It's great to have you on. Thank you. I'm excited to be on my first ever podcast. Well, you are an expert at organising international events, and I'm really excited to explore that. Starting off, I mean, what what are the main challenges of of organising an event in a developing country? There are a lot of challenges. The biggest one is probably communication issues. Mm. Um, For me, especially for me, um, I 
don't speak any other language. I keep thinking to myself, I should learn Spanish. I should learn Spanish because so many countries speak Spanish. But um, I have a great team um, of um, event planners who all speak um, different languages. So I kind of like lean on them when I need to. I think a big thing is cultural differences as well. Some countries, they don't have like internet connection, they have poor internet connection. So it's like trying to figure out how to communicate with them. Like they don't, they don't like emailing. They might prefer to use WhatsApp. Um, you might be in China where you um, you can't use WhatsApp, mm. you can't use Facebook. Um, so there's that um, issue. So it's just like finding a ground to be able, a common ground to be able to communicate with them. Um, I also find that um, most of the countries in the world that we work with, um, other than doing events in the UK, are very curious to find out more about your personal life. So okay. building up <laughs> that... Um, that relationship mm. with um, the person um, on the ground that you're working with, the vendor that you're working with, um, and not just going straight into the business um, is very important. Um, I have a long list of challenges, so I can keep <laughs> going on if you want to hear them. Um, time management, um, especially, um, we're, we're very time management orientated in the UK and a lot of partners, a lot of um, countries in the world are not so much. Contracts, cash versus card. Not everyone uses card. It's just like, oh, pay us when we get there. We need a, we need a contract. No, we don't do contracts. What's a contract? That type of thing. Yeah, I imagine that makes it very difficult to get things planned in. Yes, exactly. And you're like, am, am I going to turn up in that country? And we have a restaurant booked, or we have the hotel booked because they haven't like agreed to a contract. So. Um, that's a difficult one, and then I think very imp- like important working across time zones is mm. very difficult um, because depending on where you are, you could be like taking calls um, with vendors and speaking to people at goodness knows what time in the middle of the night. So that can be challenging. Again, with my team, I make sure that I have like people across all different time zones. Well, I imagine when you get the brief for an event and you need to do a lot of research. I guess where, where do you kind of start with that? Yeah, so obviously Google is a is a good thing these days. Um, also, um, we have um, DMCs on the mm. ground who um, we work with, um, and we've built relationships with them um, now because we've gone. I've been I've been running events um, for over nine years, um, so we have strong relationships with the DMCs, um, with communities, with vendors, um, and we even if we go to like a Google search, for instance, we can send somebody on the ground rather than doing a site visit to go and check it out for us because we have relationships with these people that we trust um, we do obviously go and do site visits if um, if it's a bigger event or if it's a, an area or country that we haven't been to before um, but generally um, if it's somewhere we've been to before we trust that our um, local staff on the ground can do that um, always check a trip advisor I always do that and I know that you get people that complain about um, every single little detail but you can generally get a good um, sense mm-hmm. of like what things are like um, and tourism bureaus as well. Um, we work closely with tourism bureaus to figure things out. Yeah. How important is it to kind of be collaborating with the local communities on the ground where you're organising these events? Extremely um, important. I think that um, 
like over the years we've made a shift between like okay let's just go to this country and have this event and have this jolly up just because we're in this this nice luxury country mm. to let's give them exposure to the community and to what is actually ha- happening there um we usually do that through like maybe school visits or community visits or if we can't do that we would try and bring some kind of aspect element of the um community to the event recently we had an event where we set up a like a market like a flea market okay. um, where we had locals come from all over Nepal and they came to the hotel we set it up in like the main lobby area and they were selling products that they had made um, in the local communities and they um, they, they travelled for miles to do this and like all of our attendees this was a, a global conference all of our attendees were really excited they could buy things um from the local communities to take back as gifts and they didn't have to like go anywhere to do it um, and also they were giving money to these people that had worked hard and um, that was like a year's salary for them mm. what they made so that was um that was good so yeah really really important to bring the local context to the event and i feel like it just sets sets the scene we try and do something um i always recommend doing something on like the first day of the event um that um enlightens like the community aspect um of where you are the country you are um if you can't then like maybe like an optional day where Mm. there's like optional activities come come a couple of days earlier and then um you can do x y and z um it's also really good um so I guess so when you when you're when you're managing the event, I mean, how much I guess you talk, you kind of talked about the issue of kind of time zones and having having people on the ground. How much can be done kind of remotely from if you're from the UK, and how much actually requires you to be on the ground and kind of sorting things out? Yeah, I mean, because we have um, like the trusted the, like. I call, I'll call them partners in the local, um, in the countries that we work with. We don't need to be on the ground to organise things. We do a lot of things virtually and like we're lucky the, this day and age that we have Zoom and we have Skype and FaceTime and what have you. So it's not critical to be on the ground. It's important to have built those. I keep going back to relationship yeah. building. It's really important that you already have that relationship in place and people really know the objective of the event that you're organising um, so that they can work with you towards um, towards that objective and making sure those goals are, are met. So, so when you're when you're going to a, into a country for the first time, like how 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 do you build the relationships with the people on the ground? Being open and honest about the event, mm. I found that in with my experience, people go to a country like Thailand. There'll be an incentive trip, and it's and it's let's go and check check the box so that we've done some social yeah. stuff and we have um, painted a wall. And that wall's been painted like 50 times. It doesn't need painting. So really making sure that we're doing something that's meaningful and impactful and making a difference to the community and helping Mm. them. And we're not just there to check the boxes. So talking about like what we do, talking about the event and just being clear with the locals that that we want to we want to work in collaboration with them and not we're not just there to have a jolly up mm. yeah i think the goal i think for me the goal is for us to understand the local context so mm. we would go in and make sure that we understand that so we would go we would do what the attendees do go on a community visit get in a car for 4 hours and go and like meet people in the schools and and really get to see how the locals live 
Mm, so kind of connect, connecting the kind of two, two yeah. cultures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so in, your, in your kind of 10 years organising international events, I guess what, what are kind of some of the most important lessons that you've learned? With, with global events, there are so many different different cultures coming together and just being respectful that not everybody is the same. Um, so, like, not everybody wants to hug hello and kiss hello. Yeah. Um, some people need a room to pray. Some yeah. people just need a quiet space to pray. Um, there may be many, thing, many things like that. I think just giving people, like, the, the respect and time, not having set agendas mm-hmm. i think that's something that has evolved over over the nine years we used to very much have like theater style traditional mm. let's have a speaker in the room and be talked at for an hour that doesn't work people people get very very tired and they lose um concentration especially when jet lagged so i think um we've moved we've shifted towards more of a yes we open with everybody mm. in the room but more of a you can select your own event so we have different like work like streams within the event um and people sign up for those um sessions workshops um whatever you want mm. to call them we like have yoga we have like free time so that people can just connect i think it's important that people have time to just connect informally over breakfast and lunch and dinner because that's when a lot of the the important conversations and connections happen mm. i guess it'll bring so many kind of so many different aspects together that being flexible is is the best way to accommodate those yeah yeah flexible is a really good yeah <laughs> that's a really good one definitely the flex the flexibility what would you say is the most interesting event that you think you've that you've worked on? So the most interesting event that I've probably worked on or the most challenging event was in China. Mm. It was in rural China. We had to take three flights to get there, completely jet lagged. Um they're like away in advance. But we were we didn't have a lot of options in terms of conference space within the hotel. So we had to be really creative because a lot of the events that I work on aren't in the corporate world. It's for non-profit. So there's not a huge budget. So it's it's a case of being creative with the space that we have. So we used like small dining rooms with the spindle um, tables and we'd move those out and we'd have those as breakout rooms. And we just did lots of creative things like that. Um, visas are, are very, very challenging for mm. a lot of countries as well. So that's something I missed earlier um, when you said about the challenges. Getting people visas when it's an international event um, can be quite a mission. What else was what another event? India, in, organising events in India is always um, interesting because they um, they like to do things last minute. Um <laughs> So India is one that you need to be on the ground mm-hmm. quite a lot and you need to go back for site visits, I would say. And then going back to like the DEI thing, um, an interest in South America, as you probably are aware, in South America they like to drink and um, other cultures do not like to drink so much. So an interesting event that I had um, in um, Colombia um, where the hosts, we had a closing dinner mm. and the hosts decided that it would be interesting, it would be fun to um, welcome on stage this band and they had these flags and before we knew it, everybody was drinking alcohol and dancing on the table before we'd even be served dinner, um, which was great fun. <laughs> real party. For, it was a real party and it was great fun for probably 
eighty percent of the of the delegates, um, but there were obviously twenty percent ish who didn't drink, and that culture wasn't acceptable for them, so it wasn't very inclusive. Mm-hmm. Well, I imagine that's quite that's quite a challenge is when you're kind of bringing different people together. The you know, you've got some people that like to drink, some people that don't. That kind of that that cultural difference when you're planning yes. kind of parties and stuff. I imagine that's quite a challenge to get kind of. To please yeah. it, to appease everybody, it really is, yeah. So what we've done more recently is just made sure we, like a lot of the big global events, we always have like a closing dinner. Um, so we'd have the closing dinner and we would serve alcohol, um, but um, the real party would be taken somewhere else so that those people would have to like move somewhere else so that it was more inclusive for people mm-hmm. who didn't want to drink. They could just stay at their table and sit and continue conversations um, and it wasn't in their face as uh, as such. <laughs> No one dancing on their table. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, thank you so much for, for joining us on the podcast. It's been really interesting. It's been great fun. Thank you for having me. Good luck with your, your future events. Thanks. If you enjoy the show, make sure to rate us on iTunes or your podcast app of choice. For links to everything mentioned in the episodes, you can find those in the show notes below. If you have any questions you'd like to submit to the News Digest or you'd like to get in contact with the show, you can email us at eventlab at hirespace.com. And you can follow all that we do on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at eventlab underscore online. Thanks very much for listening.